decoded. Welcome to this episode of the Founder Tech Decoded podcast. I'm delighted on this episode to be talking to Francesco Cracolici, who is, um, in terms of everyone we've talked to, probably has the widest perspective. On a recent episode, we focused on why um, the regions such as the uh, Southwest, which is vibrant and becoming increasingly interconnected, still has problems with capital flowing in and out of London and being London bias and centric. Francesco um, blows that open um, because he, I think, is you know one of a few specialists that I've come across that really, really looks much bigger than that into emerging markets, which I'll let him define. But I, I, I think we're going to hear what emerging markets might mean, may not be what we think it is, um, and 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 how you deal with the government, uh, you know, angel investment taxes, and how how there's so much opportunity in these wider um, wider emerging markets. And and as I said. Uh, to him before we press record, he's going to give us a masterclass in how you make millions of dollars in Mongolia. So, um, Francesco, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Oh, that, that that's a very that's a very difficult statement. I'll promise that I give you a plan to how to make millions in Mongolia at the yeah. end of the conversation. So, do you want to outline what you mean by emerging markets? Like, let's get your just let's get that down down first. Yeah, nice. So emerging market is every market that is not established where is a, okay, of course, there's no scientific de- definition of it, but any emerging market is a, a country is not completely, let's say, developed from an economic point of view. So it's still, uh, we call it in level, the majority of people are living in level two or level three of poverty, at least. Uh, level two or three means they earn less than $30 per day and uh, up to $1. And uh, the, the, what is very important to define emerging markets like this, they're completely green fields, so they don't have the majority of the tech solution that we, that we give for granted. Like they don't have Uber, they don't have Deliveroo, they don't have, uh, they don't have, uh, oh no, uh, they don't have Gorilla. And so it's a massive green fields for investors and founders. They can literally become millionaires overnight by taking the right opportunity. So so have you seen examples of people, I mean, let's just use the example you just used there, say Deliveroo, where people have taken that model from, you know, more developed markets and then literally exported it and, and transplanted it into emerging markets. Have you have you got case studies of that? Oh, man, like, so, so much, so much. And that's what the whole thesis is about. Okay, can so you, the, yeah. Yeah, the, the point is, uh, in emerging markets, you have, um, in general, this importer or exporter technology. Importer is some exporter is someone that creates something and then goes around the globe to commercialize it and make money of it. So if I create Slack or Facebook or Twitch or anything else, I'm selling it to people around the globe from the States. I'm exporting my tech. That's how it works. If I if I am an in how can become how can I become a good exporter? I need to first of all have a solution that it beats everyone else. So my Slack could be better than any other Slack competitor there is. My Uber should be better than the every other Uber competitor is. 
Second of all, I, so to do that, I need to get access to the best capital, the best uh, support, the best talent, etc. So what I'm now saying is to become an exporter, you need to have the top of the top in terms of capital, talent, techno technology. And this is only available in the US, in England, in Paris, in Berlin, in certain, in certain extent, in Tel Aviv, etc. So the emerging markets usually do have very little exporter, very little exporter, but have a lot of importers. So people that get a model and apply to the market. So let's take Uber, okay? So Uber is a, a 70, 60 billion dollar company, whatever. It took, it took years and years and years of refining the product. It took billions of capital to understand what, what, what adds, what product works better. Now, what I do, that I'm based in Lebanon, is I copy exactly what Uber did and it spends billions on understanding how does the model work. I copy and I do the exact same copy in Lebanon where there's no Uber. Why there's no Uber in Lebanon? Because Uber is much, much more interesting in focusing on in the States or focusing on in maybe Canada rather than going to Lebanon. So yeah. in the meantime, I can make money. That's why in like, for instance, if you look at all the emerging markets, every emerging market, apart from one, has a unicorn that is a Uber copy or a Deliveroo copy or a, I don't know, a Gorilla copy, okay? Uh, so the whole point here is by importing direct technology, you increase by far, far, far more the chance you're going to make it. And in terms of, so, so let's just talk about that process. So let's say you and I wanted to copy something. Let's say we wanted, use, let's keep your example. We, we were the people that wanted to copy Uber and take it into an emerging market. Mm -hmm. we, we, we then, we, we, we work out how to do that. And I'm interested in like, you know, from the government and, you know, logistics and legal point of view. Um, then do we raise capital from external sources or do we raise capital from different markets which I, I know you're part that's part of your story as well so what, what let, let's take it as a two-part question how do we gain permission to to launch the uber uber copy and then and then how do we get capital and the resources and i guess i guess resources not just in capital, the capital but human capital human resources as well the, the skills we need Mm -hmm. Depends what country. So if we are in a very, very, very early stage ecosystem like Zambia, it might be more challenging. If we are into more established ecosystem, there's plenty of people we can work with in terms of talent. With this said, what, I, what I've seen working, and I can give you a real story right now. So I said before that every country has a billion dollar company. Every region on the planet has a billion dollar company that is an Uber copycat. In South America, it's called Rappi. In uh, in, uh, in the, the east part of South America, is called Yami. In um, in Southeast Asia, is in Southeast Asia, is called uh, Gogek. It's called Grab. And I can go on and on and on with all the yeah all the countries. There's one place in the world that is no Brits, and there's not such a strong competitor. And this place is Sub-Saharan Africa. So there is this girl, 19 years old. Uh, she is Chinese, saw the opportunity, moved there. What she did is she copied exactly how does the Uber Eats model works, just create a prototype, went into raising money just a bit from local people or other people that work in the same industry, so people that understand the model. And then she got the team, she got the prototype, she got some early traction and went on fundraising globally. 
Um, and now a, a burger in Ethiopia costs 1.8 euros included, delivery included. And uh, now she's growing 70% month on month. She joined YC. The company is worth more than 50 million in less than one year. Why? Because she just applied what the people from Uber or people from uh, Rappi has been done on an Ethiopian scale. Do you get what I mean? I, I, I totally understand. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, you know, it, it, I think very few people are even aware that this exists. How, how did you get into this? And then, and then, can you talk about your role in the capital part of this? So, how, so how, did, how did you? How did this, this, these worlds, these opportunities, open up to you? Mm-hmm. So, there's a good thing. If you have a guys want to invest, you need to know that investing into strong investing into established markets. When I mean established, I mean every market that is not tier two or tier three. And the list is very broad, is all about getting access. So we know from the beginning that these guys are gonna make so much money. Simply, these guys get so much capital that they don't need your capital. So if you go in England, if you go in, the, in San Fran, if you go, even if you go in Latvia, even if you go in Estonia, you might find a lot of very high-level people that worked on a top-notch startup and now they are starting their own firm and they go raise money and in a month they already raised their round and if you have money to invest it's too late because they gonna, they always have the best people while so so in the major in, in the great in the majority of times in established market if you want to be successful as an investor you need to get access to the best of the people and it takes years and years and years while in a major market there's no capital so everyone is happy to take your money everyone at any point and if you are not local, it's even better because they're like, well, you know, they can brag about it. They can say, look, look, this guy from England just put money into me in Lagos. How come? I'm, I must be good. He can brag about it, etc. So in emerging markets, it's all about showing up and they come to you. In established markets, you need to be good. What you need to be good in emerging market, of course, is speaking. So you have hundreds and hundreds and opportunities. You need to understand which one are good, which one are bad. Now, how do we understand? So when you do exporter, so let's say that I do a startups to, in, to I don't know, to do some uh, AI, to in, AI to understand, to reduce the time for drug discovery. This is very technical. To understand this guy's good, I need to be a technical guy, okay? And we work with the, with the farm, with the, with the drug company, the drug corporates will want it. I don't know. I need to be a technical guy. I have so many questions. And then is the market that big? Is the market like, he, he can get five clients, but can he get to 20, 30, 50 million in revenue? I don't know. While if I do importers, these two questions, so is this gonna work and the market could be big, is already like, is already clear. So if they do a Uber Eats again in, in Ethiopia, I know they're already gonna work and I know for sure that the market is big. The only question I have is the guy or the girl that is running the company good enough? So it's all about people now. How do I judge if someone is good or not? So this is my personal thing. Of course, I'm not a billionaire, so don't follow me too much. Uh, when I'll be a billionaire, listen listen to it again. So you might, you might <laughs> see that, but what happened is, that's what I look at. So if there's, um, there's a guy called Binet. Binet is the guy that created the IQ test from Stanford. And he, they told him, that, that everyone keep telling me, so, the high is your IQ, 
the more you're going to be successful in life. And he's like, well, bullshit. What, there's three things that are going to make you successful in life, in life. And then discipline, resilience, and goal setting up it. That's what he said. And based, on, of course, on studies. So what I do is when I talk to people, first of all, I do understand the business, etc. Once it's done, I just focus on understanding if they think in goals, if they are resilient, and if they've been disciplined. How do we do it? I ask questions about their personal life. They make me understand if it's true. So if they've been a world-class athlete before, it means they have, they, they have discipline. If they've been through hard times, it means and they, they, they actually succeed, it means they have resilience. And if I ask them about the goal and they give me specific numbers very, very on point, I know they have some goal-setting ability. So there's a plus. Uh, so, Arden, I, I really love what you've just said, but let's just take a real-life example. You don't need to name a name. So let's just say, let's stick again with your example. Someone's doing Uber Eats um, and in, in a market that doesn't have that. But I, I, one, one thing I think is really important to, um, to recap on what you've just said is that the risk profile in terms of the tech is much lower when you are importing it into an emerging market because... The, most of that risk has been absorbed by other people's capital in developed markets. And I think that's absolutely crucial point. But I would have thought the risk is higher when it comes to the ability of the individual to execute um, in, in, the, in the way that you've outlined um, around resilience and goals. Um, you know, you're, you're taking a lot of risk when someone's coming in front of you and they haven't necessarily got a pedigree um, in tech or delivering so you've got that. How how do you hone in on hone in on that? Even from just sort of verifying that that person is who you know is who they say they are, you know has the skills to do it. Like, isn't there a higher risk there? But I do see that there's a much lower te technical risk. Is that your experience? Yeah. So the thing is, absolutely, you nailed you nailed um, you hit the nail on the head. So the um, First of all, you need to understand for the one the first the first thing what I try to understand is is this person like good as he says? And uh, it's fairly easy to understand because if you look at what I've done in the past with the same company, so if you look at how they scale up customer acquisition and they scale up how do we understand what is the bottleneck, what do they think they miss, what do they think they know, you I mean you see what what works and what doesn't. So I'll give you an example, right? So Let's say that I'm a B2B SaaS, okay? At the beginning, the only thing I should care about uh, as a B2B SaaS CEO is, is getting as many meetings as I can with people and trying to get as many feedback as I can. Then how you do it is debatable, okay? But that's the main goal. If I see you working on something else, if I see you just delivering, uh, you're delivering features nonstop, I do understand that you don't have a clear understanding of it. You don't have a clear understanding of the bottleneck of your business. And for me, it's a no. Maybe you have, but I'm going to pause you. And then maybe in like a month from now, we're going to check in later. So it's all about understanding. So the main step that I do is understand what is the clear bottleneck of your business. That's usually always sales and it's always going to be sales. And then I will try to understand if you have clear that this is the problem and if you're trying to solve it and how. If you're doing smart in a smart way, you mean, it means that you're a smart person. But, but but even so, there is there's sort of you know if you meet of course you, let's 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 flip it to London right so let's say you meet someone at a London tech meetup and they're thinking mm -hmm. you something there's it's still risk you, there's still a lot of unknowns I'm going to come back to you know the the, the 
that we're very focused on founder market fit and leveraging founder market fit and modeling and analyzing founder market fit. In fact, I'm going to ask you the question now. How do you, how do you analyze for founder market fit um, to the founder? I'm still not, I still don't quite understand. You meet someone. Yes, you're, you're, you're analyzing their general the parameters of how they think and how they behave and their history. But in terms of being able to execute specifically um, on their startup, when that startup is being mirrored, it sounds like copied, and then the kind of like a facsimile of that is trying to be applied. How when you're, I'm assuming what you're still putting significant levels of capital into that person. They still need, you know, they're still needing, you know, en enough capital to launch and scale. How do you know that that person can do that? Because at least if you meet the person in a network in London, um, and maybe I'm completely wrong here, and please challenge me on that, that there is some kind of confirmation bias and social proof there that the person exists in kind of ecosystems and things that where, where they're kind of literate. In, in the ability to execute. They may not be able to, but at least you could, but how do you do that if you're somewhere in an emerging market and they have no track record at all and you still need to put, say, I'm assuming, you know, quite a large amount of capital on for them to even replicate something like Uber Eats, like the example that we keep using. Can, can you just, unless I'm missing something, can you drill into that? Yeah. So they usually have a let's say some sort of pedigree. Is not the of course like if you if you are in London, then if you have a good pedigree, it means that you had you you were a VP at Revolut, right? This is the best pedigree maybe you can find in fintech London. Yeah. And those guys don't have such like good pedigree, but they still go a good like you can find people that have achieved great stuff. So you have a guy that work that spends like three years in London working for startups, did some very good results and now right. went back to Ghana to do their own thing. Or there's a guy that can just work as a C-level C executive in Singapore and went back to Mongolia to start their own company. So there's some sort of, these are not like, these are not people from high school out of nowhere. Right. And it usually doesn't happen. And usually one of the, if you, like, if I look up my most, most successful companies, they have one thing in common, one of the things they have in common is the founders is all, uh, we call it diaspora guys. So people that went on studying at Stanford and then they came back to their country. Okay, that's that's critical. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, diaspora guys, I, I, I really like that as a, as a phrase. Um, what's the level of capital that you generally source? for? So let's just keep with our example, the Uber Eats for Ghana. Um, what's the kind of quantum of ticket size that they're looking for initially? Because I'm assuming because they're replicating, they want to hit the ground running. And like you said, because it's like a virgin greenfields market, the quicker you can be dominant and be the unicorn, that that's the strategy, right? So how much is generally the sort of capital that they'll need to kind of be begin on that journey? Exactly. So there's a very, like, that's a super good question. So if you guys ever want to raise capital, especially in emerging market, this is the key trick that everyone keep avoiding and... And as a result, most of the startups actually fail or don't succeed. Yeah. The, it's all about speediness. It's all about who can operate faster and who can grab the market faster. Because the market is there. It's up for taking. Are you going to be the one taking it? Let's see. Because it's you and other 50 people doing the same thing. The faster, the more likely, is more, the more likely you are you to succeed. Now, to be faster, you need the capital, of course. How do you get capital with investors, of course? How do you convince an investor to join? It's fairly easy. You just sweat for a lot of time until you get the first check. And then once you get the first check, 
is every, you build momentum and everything is easier. So it's super duper common that you have a round uh, that is like up in the air for one year, then uh, they get the first check and then you want to invest as well, but it's too late because once they get the first check, everyone jumps in. Uh, so, and what's the average size of that first check? I mean, if there is well, a rule of thumb. Yeah, so that, that's interesting. If you have a startup, so first of all, there is some, now in some emerging market, they, some some mature emerging market, they reach the same level as Europe. So you can find a pre-seed, a, a seed, a 10 million valuation. In Egypt, you can find it. In Kazakhstan, you believe or not, you can find it. In, in Morocco, you start to see this. In, in Romania, not even mention it much, much more, etc. Uh, usually, you any seed stage you can get to any seed stage startup as a first check for five million or so. And if you uh, if you meet the right person, I can tell you that if they have just an idea and they already have maybe one client, you can get in at like one million valuation or two million valuation. And from an investment point of view, it's perfect because even if they get up, so and every every investor needs to report to someone, and usually it's the LP. If you invest at 1 million and the guy happened to raise or the girl happened to raise a series A at 20 million, there is like, it's like you have, if you're good, you have 30 to 50% chance to do it. You can report a 20X in like one year or two years and you're going to look so smart. Maybe the company fails, but in the meantime, for your need as an investor, as a reporting, it's so good. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. And, and, and in terms of kind of, like founder tech, you know, are you seeing in emerging markets in these deals from the investor and the founder, are they using what, what we're describing as founder tech, like tools that are being developed to facilitate these these transactions and these types of investments? Yeah, so I'm telling you one thing about founder tech. And I, I truly, so this founder tech, there is, let's say there's two ways. There's, there's two micro, micro, micro trend of founder tech. And I mean, you're the expert here. And to be honest, I feel like I haven't said enough jokes. So from now on, I'm going to just spit all the jokes I have in mind. <laughs> With that said, um, the, you are the expert here. But founder tech, there's two kinds of founder tech. There is the kind of matchmaking thing. So when you have startups and founder, and you have the platform, you have the matchmaking stuff, you have a discovery platform, you have like uh, the likes of Deal Room, OpenBC, and all those guys. And then there is also... There is also another kind of founder tech. There is all the infrastructure. So like create a deal, create an SPVs, create, um, create a Delaware entity, uh, manage your cap table, uh, manage your contracts, yeah. etc. So why of both of them, they works much more in emerging markets because if you want to create your LTD in England, you go online, you do it. But if you want to create your company in... Um, if you want to create your company in Kosovo, the process is so long and so intricate and so difficult that if someone come up to you and says, give me a thousand dollars, create everything online, you'd be like, thank you, sir. Where can I, can I give my wife to you? Just you will do whatever you could to get rid of this bureaucracy that you have in emerging markets. On the second macro area of funder stack, you have all this matchmaking and we start a platform and discovery platform, etc. So, Let's say I'm the VP of Facebook and I say it's a stand-alone company. So if I'm the VP of a stand-alone company, I'm the king. I can get capital in a week. Do I need your platform? No. So as a result, your platform is full of people that don't actually, actually have, um, they're not as high quality as the people I want as an investor. If 
if you are in emerging markets, again, there's so much lack of capital. Those guys just strive and want to have capital at any point. Doesn't matter how big you are, they will do whatever. So you will have a much higher quality of startups when it comes to founder tech in emerging markets than in established markets. And that's yeah. my take, of course. Again, don't listen to me. I wouldn't listen to myself. <laughs> no, it makes complete sense. It makes complete sense because where founder tech um, works is when people aren't wedded to the legacy of the, uh, the venture system. So, you know, one of these ideas in the switch tech is the, 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 the switch tech that is the um, venture at a crossroads. But I think when it applies, and this is what's so fascinating to this conversation, when you're kind of starting from this um, greenfield place, of course, you're going to use the tools that make the transaction and the flow and the, and the fluidity and the agility as quick as possible. Because why wouldn't you? Because as you said, if, if speed is such a, an asset, you're going to use whatever tools you can use to, to generate that speed and momentum and, and get the capital that you need. Whereas in sort of more developed markets, Founder Tech is incredibly powerful, but it still has to kind of justify itself against the initial venture ecosystem, which isn't built in that way. So in in, in some ways, Founder Tech almost plays, as you've, as you've sort of alluded to, exactly into the uh, emerging markets because there's no legacy there. There's no there's no sort of there's no inheritance. There's no it's just like of course we would use these tools. So I, I, almost it's it's a fascinating case study that around founder tech and the deployment of it that you, you can see how it would you know any, anybody listening to this going great i'll either use these tools or develop these tools it's almost like an ancillary opportunity next to the investments that you've been discussing itself is the development of founder tech in these regions uh, uh, would, would you agree with that yeah 100 percent. if you look i can send you the picture that i've seen in my startups in the middle east or in my startups in sub-saharan africa or the startups again in central asia when they have to open up a company, it's like 25 different papers. If you come up and says, look, give $500 to Stripe Patros and get a Delaware entity, they look at you like you've got you, you, you yeah. got How do you do that? What kind of sorcery is that? Yeah. So yeah, 100%. Um, okay, so let's, let's, let's just go to the, the, the switch deck and some more of the ideas, because I think you, you're going to have a very interesting um, perspective on this because because it's, it's such a different lens in the emerging markets is venture at a crossroads is it is it, it might be a different crossroads from the way we've been talking about it uh, previously but is it, uh, is it is it evolving and developing into something else something into more, using more technology more using more founder tech using different ways of thinking is it becoming more agile like is that your experience in the emerging markets itself in the time you've been involved in them yeah, so one super interesting thing that happened with emerging markets in tech, you mean tech in general? So people, how do people approach tech? No, no, I mean like venture. Have you seen how venture is structured, is evolving in emerging markets? Like the way people think about it, the way it flows, the way it's framed, the way it's kind of uh, activated. Is, is venture itself evolving as the, emerging, the needs in the emerging markets evolve? Yeah, so those guys just needs money. So like the the while in Europe is all about finding the best way to invest money because you know VCs want to do A or VCs want to do B and you need to understand which one is the best. In those places, they just they just have so much in need of money that even the zero value added investors will be so good, so right. good. So there's not a lot of 
thing there's not a lot of like venture evolving of course like when you are in a country let's say you are in uzbekistan right if you do a startup in uzbekistan and you do it good you can expand to tajikistan kyrgyzstan and kazakhstan right how big can you potentially be you cannot be big i'm telling you so when you are that kind of level you need to of course have a venture strategy that fits the market you're operating at and uh, most of the time it needs to fit the fact that you're never going to be a unicorn you're never going to be uh, you're never going to do ipo you're just going to do a small exit and you so you need to invest a very low amount very low valuation hoping the company will accept the offer to be acquired in five years from now so there's a bit of an adaptation with this said the whoop point is venture is always the same in this market they always look at uh, the US and England and copy. Right. Uh, okay. Let me ask a more specific question then. Yeah. In in those deal in that deal flow, uh, again, one of the, the the things that we come up at, uh, and is a belief of mine is that the pitch deck is a legacy tool that you would never design today. You would design it in a different way. Pelly, uh, we have a you know we have a view on that with what we're launching black box. You just you just would never design the pitch deck to tell founder stories in the way. So I'm very interested, given the greenfield situation, is it driven by pitch decks? Is has the pitch deck been adopted, or is there other other tools that have been used to convey that early stage opportunity, the founder's journey, the team? Like or what what's being used? So uh, you want to know exactly how the process works in those places? Do I know, did you say? No, do you want to know exactly how that's Yeah, I'd, I'd love to know. It's a specific question. So it's like, is, is the pitch deck in, uh, part of the currency of the conversation? Is it or are other things being used? Like, I'd love to kind of, like, on that granular level, that when a founder is trying to communicate an opportunity, let's, let's just say, like we said, Uber Eats for Ghana, like, what are they using to communicate that to the investors? Is ah, it, yeah, it's like 99% of the time is always the pitch. Still a pitch deck, like a always, yeah, always the really? pitch. Really? Yeah, of course. It's like you have the pitch deck, and you send the pitch deck, and if you good, if the pitch deck is good enough, and you are good enough, you get a meeting, and then of course, um, of course, uh, in those places where the capital is so low, you never invest on the spot because there's no competition, so you don't need to be the quickest. You just need to be the smartest, and so you. And then it's all about people, right, in those places. So it's all about understanding how they operate. So you say, well, I'll let you know. Anyway, a month or two or three. And in the meantime, you receive the deck updates. And you compare the last deck with the new deck and see how the numbers are going. Uh, if the numbers are going up, you say, I'm on board. If the numbers are not going up, you say, I'm out. That's so interesting. I mean, it's so, I, I understand why that's the case. I understand. I, I, I get Again, I think it's to do with the replication and the speed, but actually the pitch deck is probably really, really good at communicating the qualities that you need. And like, and, and when you're looking for founders with a summary of qualities and you know behavioral traits that you listed, it's very, very good. And it's so interesting to hear that in that kind of greenfield situation, emerging market situation, I get why that, that tool would work. Whereas when you're in more markets that are flooded with opportunity, it's becoming less and less effective. It's just such an interesting sort of seesaw or AB that in like in the markets you're talking about, actually, no, it's actually a really good tool that actually if you have a really good deck and it's really clear, you immediately stand up from the crowd and get your capital. It, it, you know, you see what I mean? Like whereas where, it, where it's really noisy and there's thousands of decks, it's so hard to discern that it's become less and less useful. But, 
Yeah, there's also a thing when it comes to there's also a thing that you say you say right you know you say right again. Uh, there's also another thing that makes sense uh, why the deck is so so important uh, because we already know the business models. It's like exactly. if I send you a deck about yeah I don't know me doing a new platform for engineers to meet other engineers that do and have never been yeah. done yeah. before or never been done on a successful scale before. I'm like, okay, let me see how big is the market. Let me see how big yeah, is it. Yeah. Let me see if they have validation. If I'm like, okay, let's do this, I don't know, school for kids, uh, school coding kids for school. It's been like all oh, this men, like these uh, tutoring platform. Okay, there's plenty of unicorns. But I know how that works. I don't need to focus that much. And the only thing I need to focus on is numbers. So I want to see yeah. if you yeah. have secure. As I know that the market is big. You don't need to tell me there's 3 billion people uh, looking for the services. Do you get what I mean? No, I totally. That's exactly what I was saying. It's like it's so interesting why that tool would work when those are the framing dynamics. You can, I can absolutely. I'm a massive. You know, one of my whole things, and I'm kind of starting to be known for, is like like the pitch deck just shouldn't be there because it's not it's not a good tool. But I totally get in the markets you're talking about why it works, and it's just very interesting to understand that that when when there is this sort of much more open greenfield situation that it is a very good tool but when it's a flooded market it's a very poor tool or increasingly a poor poor tool so i think that's absolutely fascinating i got another question for you which comes from the the, the switch deck which is um again in in in, in the uk and, and then it's i guess developed markets you're getting this rise of you mentioned syndicate before but syndicate founder driven solo driven solo capitalist driven capital where tools like Odin, Boban, you know, where you can form syndicates really quickly, which I, I am a huge advocate of. I think it's the future of like early stage investors having a small network, five, six, seven people of really aligned capital and being able to form those syndicates really quickly. It's a huge trend and it's a lot about what founder tech empowers. Are you seeing those types of behaviors in these markets or is it still sort of kind of traditional solo angels vcs kind of institutional investors like have you is, is is that development mapping over into emerging markets so it's actually like this is very interesting to say so what happened is let's say i am your classic john doe that i've been working i've been working i don't know 30 years in bbc or british bt i work yeah. 30 years BT, and I made the 300k per year at the end of the my career, and now I've got a couple of millions bank account. Yeah. And I, the only thing I, I literally don't understand tech at all because it's not my job. I've been doing some compliance shit, and now now I'd say, okay, I want to invest in startups because it's cool. And my friend's John, my friend John is doing this too. I want to do it. And then um, of course some guy come and pitch me and uh, pitch me and pitch all my group of angels, and. Um, but the guy that comes to me is the guy that cannot get any money. So the guy that comes to me, he, he knows that he needs to deal with a guy that doesn't understand, that a guy that's going to have a lot of stupid questions, that a guy that's going to write you a 10K check and it's going to take three months or two months, and a guy that you need to do your own due diligence. Like, he's like, I'm a pain in the ass. Yeah. So who's going to pitch me? Just the one that cannot get capital from syndicates, cannot get capital from... Uh, cannot get capital from VCs yeah. or just value me as a person because they want to have some BT connection and I'm the BT guy. So I'm either can get all the people that want to work with BT or I'm going to get a shitty deal flow. 
on average. It doesn't mean that every startup is a million share. It means simply statistically, every startup will be on a lower level than what a top tier VC can get. Again, in emerging markets, you go like there's no capital. Like you go raise 100k, but you know there's no one can give you. So even if you are the most annoying person on the planet, even if you just call them every day at 3 a.m. telling that you're lonely, they're still happy. <laughs> so you get access to very high quality. Okay, that that, that that makes complete sense too. So is part of what you're doing as we start to kind of like go full arc of the conversation, are you are you starting to play that kind of syndicate role? Um, or what's your role in the in the venture ecosystem in these emerging markets? If you could, can you share a little bit about and, and almost describe what your life is? Because I know you bounce from country to country to country. Could you share a bit more of that as we start to kind of wrap up? Nice. So what I do is like I run a program for one of the biggest development bank in the world called EBRD. When we either invest fund, anyway, we fund around 150 startups per year in 29 countries and all spread around uh, Central Asia, Eastern Europe, North Africa, Middle East. And then, of course, given that you mentioned Odin and you mentioned Vauban, I create my own version. And as I create, I join as a lay co-founder uh, my own version of Odin let's say Odin or Angelist into emerging markets, we syndicate deals basically, and we have our own platform to help you also syndicate your own deal. And so far we've syndicated around 20 million. So we deployed 20 million in less than 18 months. And uh, yeah, it's all emerging market startups, it's all startups coming from, uh, the total amount of startups is, the total number of countries where I invested is probably 35. And we have again from the from the Ethiopian from the Ethiopian start from the Ethiopian food delivery to the Revolut Uzbekistan or the from pellet producing in Mongolia to I don't know um, virtual real estate in Romania. So that's very very yeah. broad. What they share in common is all the funders are. Just a list on paper, a list onto my stupid eyes. They look amazing. What, what's the name of your your the, the the platform you just talked about? Crossfund is C R O double S fund like F U N D. And that's the what you talked about, like the Odin in emerging markets. That's exactly. That. And that's and and that's amazing. I mean, like, and is that a case of you sort of like living your own? kind of mantra or you saw this happening and thought right i'm going to provide this for much more how did you get into this francesco as a kind of like closing thing what what made you do did you have a life before and like when did you suddenly go this is what i'm going to do in my time which is fascinating so this is interesting so the image so there's this guy called Christensen. Christensen is the probably one of the top, he's a harvard professors top-notch in innovation his book is called innovators dilemma is I, yeah, I know him. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he wrote a second book that is not that popular. They called Prosperity Paradox. When he basically outlined how in the 1800s, US and Rwanda were at the same level of development and they, they end up being where they are now. Yeah. And how South Korea, for instance, was a receiver of help. They would basically they were they were like the UN will fund program for South Korea and now South Korea is one of the strongest economies on the planet and is giving is funding program to help other countries. 
and the analyze will make the difference between uh, the US and the Rwanda and then South Korea and then Vietnam. And the reality is that these, those countries have a humongous number of, it doesn't call it startup, but it's market creation companies. So they create, they create companies, they create a new market and they export and they make money and then the country develops. So the best way to lift people out of poverty is and will always be to fund the startups. So I decided I want to do that and I woke up and think, okay, I want to fund startups, I start angel investing, I start syndicating deals from Silicon Valley with top dogs like Peter Thiel, Justin, just billionaires. And then I start running the program and I saw the massive opportunity because right now doing any investment in the in emerging markets cross border is a pain in the ass. It's a pain in the ass for two reasons. You see the big opportunity, but you A, you don't know how to tackle it because so much due diligence. And what, what do you know? If you are in Pakistan, what do you know about Vietnam? Nothing. Yeah. And um, so you miss opportunity. And second of all, it's uh, apart from the due diligence is a pain in terms of regulation. So how do you invest? Where do you invest? Where do you wire the money? What about the KYC? So it's not easy. So I thought, okay, that's, that's a good thing to do. I met those guys. We basically pay up and uh, we deploy 20 million. It, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, it, 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 like you could have sat, you know, firstly the insight about the, you know, that you lift people out of poverty through market creation. You know, we hear that so often, even in the UK, right? You hear that, you know, the way to generate wealth is to empower people to be entrepreneurial, but it just sounds, it rings so true around what you're saying. And then to be kind of, you know, to, to, to then kind of get up and do something about it, take that model, take that insight and do something about it is, is just fascinating. I think, I think you have your own book in you, Francesco. I, I, think, I think there is something, I mean, in all seriousness, there's such an interesting, we've just scratched the surface. I'm so pleased to have had this conversation and have it on the podcast, but I think it scratches the surface. I easily could see you this time next year with a book in uh, Waterstones, you know, about about all of this because it takes in so many themes, you know, that are important to people and important to the world, and and, and it's not just it's just not just poverty. Obviously, that that has impact on climate, that has impact on diversity, it has impact on politics. It's you know, you're 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 playing with many many themes here that are vitally important. So I maybe encourage you if you haven't already to to write your own book because I think it's it's super interesting and it's not a story that's heard or shared very often oh man thank you so much it's you my mom that keeps saying that no one else so as soon as i get a third feedback i'll do that is that your rules three strikes and you do it yeah (laughs) um well, listen, um, I, I, like I said, I don't think we can kind of, this is like just the scratching the surface. So if people want to have this conversation with you or they want to invest in emerging markets, let's talk about that, that, that people listening to this going, wow, I really get the opportunity here. How, um, obviously we'll put your LinkedIn details in the post, but how, how should they get in contact with you and how should they approach you? So just add me on LinkedIn, mention Dan, mention Dan, and mention the podcast. And I promise I will reply to everyone. And I will, if I think I can help, I will also have a call with everyone. But you need to mention the podcast and Dan. <laughs> okay. And obviously, I'll put the link to the fund as well in it so yeah. they can check that out. Um, anything else that you want to share? Where, where are you spending? You're, you're going to spend your uh, Christmas in Italy, right? You're not, you're not in uh, Af- Afghanistan or uh, you're back home. <laughs> 
Believe it or not, I was invited to Iraq a bunch of times. Of course, I'm not going to go, but not Afghanistan, but still. So the, I'm going to spend my, I'm going to spend my Christmas in Italy and then I will start traveling again. My life is a bit erratic, so I just take a bag, fill it with a bunch of yeah. very bad clothes. Uh, and then I just travel for like two or three months in a row, visiting startups, visiting investors, visiting country. And usually I don't know where I'm going to be, where I'm going to be the next, uh, the next month. So you're a nomad. You're literally are a digital nomad. You are the <laughs> definition of it. That's, that's going in the headline. The digital nomad. Like I mean, people talk about that phrase, but you are. That's you. There's your there's your book, Francesca. That's the title. Digital nomad. That's it. You know how how to open up emerging markets and level up <laughs> yeah. poverty. There's your, there it is. Seriously, if anyone's listening to this who's a publisher, that's the book. <laughs> Anyway, before we go, I want to tell to the people, I promise, how to make 3 million in Mongolia. Oh, yeah, yeah, you did say you would do that. Yeah, I could do I that. Can say, well, we can pick any country on the planet. So first of all, look at your expertise. What are you good at? Of course, I, I think if you listen to the podcast, you're most likely to be someone in uh, in, a, in England or at least in a very developed market. Look where your expertise is. Pick a country that is where is there's a complete overlook of top opportunity in what you're doing. So let's say you work for ad tech startups. That is good. Or let's say you work in ad tech. Uh, you pick your country, you pick your thing and you clone it in a country where there's no such a big opportunity. You know all the you know all the you know the books about it. You know the you know how to do it because you've seen the boss doing this because you've done it. So you just copy. You make. You make around a million in revenue and you sell a company for three million and you buy a private island and you invite me over. <laughs> and the, I know it sounds very easy, but the amount of people I've seen taking an idea, bringing to a country, it's not even their own country, and being super successful, it's incredible. Like how many buy now, pay later company, how many seller advanced company, how many, how many food tech company, they have cloud kitchen and all those things, they just, copy an idea because they work in it. And they says, oh, wait, I fell in love with Laos and I went to Laos to this thing. And then they are now millionaires. It's huge. So just don't waste your time and go do that. I know at least three people, friends, who I could say, have you thought about this? You should listen to this because, you know, they come from those countries or their 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 parents or grandparents, you know. And there's the, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Well, maybe this, this, this conversation will, will um, launch, you know, Lots of people thinking, do you know what? Why struggle in London or the UK? I could take this over and get going very, very quickly. Um, so, um, well, listen, thank you so much for giving us this perspective. Um, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And um, enjoy Italy in uh, for Christmas before you get on the road again. And, yeah, thank you, Francesca, seriously, for, for sharing the perspective. Oh, thank you so much, man. And, uh, yeah, let's keep in touch.